Coming to you from the Barrier Islands Center on Virginia's eastern shore, this is Sharing the Mic with David Phillips. You can find this podcast on the BIC website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Be sure to like and hit that subscribe button. Several years ago, Hampton Roads Public Media, WHRO, did a series of short spots called Our Eastern Shore. On each of our podcasts, I will revisit one episode. Listen. Heaven and Earth never agreed better to frame a place for man's inhabitation. So said Captain John Smith. You are listening to Our Eastern Shore. The eastern shore of Virginia is an extraordinary geological and ecological treasure, completely unique to the east coast of the United States. The shore is bounded by the great Chesapeake Bay on the west and the Atlantic Ocean on the east, with a chain of barrier islands on the ocean side. This verdant strip of land is 22 miles wide at its widest point and unfolds some 70 miles southward from Maryland to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Graced with a unique beauty and isolation, the area offers a prime destination for birders, kayakers, sportsmen, and other visitors. The history of the Eastern Shore stretches back over 400 years, with many stories of a hardy breed of men and women who worked the bays and farmlands and marshes of this unique stretch of land. Come with us as we hear their stories and explore the land that is our Eastern Shore. Our Eastern Shore is created by WHRO in partnership with the Barrier Islands Center. Funding has been provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Today, my guest is Devlin Barrett, a reporter for the Washington Post and no stranger to the Eastern Shore and the Barrier Islands Center. Devlin Barrett, thank you for sharing the mic. Thanks for having me, Dave. I know that you grew up in upstate New York. Uh, Tell me... What's your relationship to the Eastern Shore? So I guess you could say I'm a lifelong come here, which means in my case, my grandparents uh, owned a farm here. Uh, I would come here in the summers and uh, I worked for my grandfather a couple summers when I was in high school uh, and I've been coming here my whole life. Did you spend a lot of time most every summer or? Yeah, uh, especially when I got a little older, when I was a teenager. I spent uh, whole summers here. Uh, My grandfather had started a a nursery garden business, and I just worked for him. Oh, that's cool. Um, So, And I worked, you know, uh, 300 yards from where we're sitting. Right, right. And I just worked out in the sun, and it was, was, I wouldn't call it fun work, but it was what I think they like to call character building. Yep. yep. Um, and my grandparents were great, and they were great to me, and I was I was a lucky kid. You certainly were. Uh, just for our listeners, uh, you've mentioned this land and work just 300 yards from here. Tell us what that relationship is. I know that the Barrier Island Center, when it was incorporated, bought land from your grandparents. Right. So we're in Machapungo, Virginia, one of my favorite place names on earth. Uh I believe it means dusty place. Um, and my family history is my my family has lived in this place for generations. We're sitting uh, in the bar- what's now the Barrier Island Center. It used to be the Alms House, right. uh, which was where poor people were taken care of uh, in another era before social programs. 
And in, I believe, the 50s or 60s, my grandfather uh, bought this property to because it was adjacent to his farm. And, you know, he always sort of had notions and dreams of, you know, building it out into something, building the space into something. But he never really did that. He sort of, you know, went on to other projects, other ideas, all in the farm, but not really here in this building. And so uh, he died in the 1980s. My grandmother uh, decided in the late 90s that it would be a good thing uh, to sell it to, you know, some do-gooders at a, at a pretty fair price so that they could build a community center and, and historical uh, collection here. And to be honest, it's probably the smartest thing my family's ever done because what the folks who run B the Barrier Island Center have done is, is wildly exceeded any of our hopes and expectations for what could be done with the property, what should be done with the property. Right. Um, you know, it was in a certain sense wasted on our family because we just didn't have a vision or, or the, or the ambition to build something like this. And the Barrier Island Center is just incredible. And it's, it's wonderful to see. And I get to look at it from next door every day, which is great too. Yeah, sure. In doing some research on you before we met, I read an article, uh, that you, had a teacher, the late Tony O'Connor, who taught you the art of argument, how to question authority, marshal evidence, track down sources, and build a case set upon a strong foundation of facts rather than flimsy facade of opinions. And you said to an assembly of students, Mr. O'Connor taught me how to think, how to argue, and how to listen. He liked to argue about politics and history, and he was one of the first adults in my life who felt my argument was worth hearing out. Can you expand on the importance you place on learning to think critically and analytically at an early age? Uh, the Barrier Island Center, in my opinion, is almost an ideal setting for one to develop these skills given the organization's recognition of the history and the struggles of past peoples uh, here on the Eastern Shore. Absolutely. And, and I have spent, because I've been living here through the pandemic, I've spent a lot of time just this in the last year, looking more at the history of the Eastern Shore. And, and it's another way of learning that lesson. And so what Mr. O'Connor taught me, Mr. O'Connor was my seventh grade history teacher. And it's burned in my brain the way he always challenged me. He almost, I, I can think of almost nothing that Mr. O'Connor and I actually agreed about when I was in seventh grade. I'm sure we'd agree about stuff now if he were still alive, to, to be clear. But, you know, it was a way of learning critical thinking and a way of learning, okay, so you believe the following things. What's your best argument for those things? Do you really believe those things or do you just think them because someone you like also thinks them? So, so back it up, you know, explain yourself and explain it in a way that also allows you to listen and not just pretend to listen, but to actually listen to what other people who disagree with you are saying. I remember times, and again, in my defense, I was in seventh grade, I was, I was pretty young, but I remember times where I would get so mad at Mr. O'Connor. I would, I would be just furious and I would, you know, almost be sputtering with, you know, the inability to, to explain to him in a convincing way why he was wrong about this or that silly thing. And that was really good for me. And I, I, you know, when I look at my own kids, when I look at my friends, when I look at, you know, just the people I care about in the world, I always think, boy, I hope we all carry some of that skill. I hope we all carry that um, ability to listen. The older I get, the more I think, what a lot of people are bad at is, is genuine listening. 
Um, and so I, and I, I, I include myself in that kind of, like, I'm a reporter. My job is to listen. Like I get paid, I don't get paid to ignore people. I get paid to listen. And I think all of us, as we get older, it becomes more and more tempting to listen less. And one of the ways I think about life, not just reporting, though it's certainly true of reporting, is that life is about learning. You never stop being a student. You never stop learning. And you, and you can't listen. And I'm sorry, you can't learn with, without listening. You really can't. Um, and that's how I think of what Mr. O'Connor taught me. I also think that, you know, one of the things that I didn't have in my life, which at that time, which I think is kind of good, is that I didn't have sort of a social media landscape where you can just turn up the volume on everything you agree with and you can turn down the volume on everything you disagree with. And I kind of hate that. I kind of think that's the worst thing about social media. I would agree with that. Thanks. Um, and so I would, I would just say Mr. O'Connor was, you know, the best teacher, the best sounding board, the best foil, the best opponent, critic, whatever you want to call it, that you could possibly hope for. Uh, and I've, I've said to my kids before, I hope you get a teacher you argue with as much as I argued with Mr. O'Connor, because it's good for you. Yeah, yeah. So that leads me to the next question. What in your curious mind made you decide to be a reporter? <laughs> and can you kind of outline your career path? Sure. I know that you've uh, worked for the Wall Street Journal, and now you're with the Washington Post. But give us just a broad brushstroke kind of sure. view of that. So um, I, I have not been to journalism school. I, I did go to college. I did get a degree, but it, I never studied journalism in any way. My degree is in history and political science. Uh, so, you know, I could probably make sandwiches. I could make sandwiches professionally if someone taught me how to make sandwiches. So when I was 18, uh, a friend of my mother's got me a part-time summer job at the newsroom of the New York Post where I made photocopies and where I got people coffee. It's what they called a copy boy, which almost doesn't exist anymore. But it's, it's, you're just an office lackey, which is a good way to be around a newsroom and learn how adults interact with each other. Now, as it happens, this was the New York Post, which is a very sort of aggressive, in-your-face tabloid newspaper. And my first week on the job, two editors got into a fist fight in the middle of the newsroom in front of everybody on edition. And as an 18-year-old, I saw that and thought, this is amazing. I want to work here forever. <laughs> because as an 18-year-old, everything's exciting and, and amazing. And you never, like, there was no part of my brain, because I was 18, there was no part of my brain that thought, well, that's pretty unprofessional. And that's really not the way two grown men should be behaving. All I thought was, wow, this is cool. And so I got hooked on it. And, you know, the, I had, a, I had, I worked, I learned from a bunch of incredibly cranky, crusty old editors and some slightly younger reporters. And it was a wonderful learning experience uh, because you would go out and if they needed a body on, on a day when they didn't have enough reporters on staff, you know, my first day of reporting, I think, I think the editor stood up, didn't know my name and just said, hey, Red, I was so long ago, I had red hair, said, hey, Red, go up to Harlem and check out the fire. And that was like my first real in the world reporting experience. And it, it was a little bit of a, you know, comic book, a little bit of a fairy tale but it was all completely addictive. And so I ended up spending eight years at the New York Post, became a reporter, covered cr mostly crime and courts, um, covered a lot of trials, uh, an Al-Qaeda trial before 9-11, um, just a lot of really interesting stuff. I became, you know, just completely hopelessly in love with the work. And 
then spent about eight years at the Associated Press doing much the same stuff. I, I, with, when I was with AP, I ended up moving from New York down to D.C., and so I ended up covering more Congress. But I always covered law enforcement. I always really liked law enforcement. It always felt like almost a little bit like home base for me as a reporter. And then I spent about seven years at the Wall Street Journal, again, doing the same stuff, covering law enforcement. And, uh, and I've been at the Washington Post since uh, early 2017, and it's been fantastic. I've been just crazy, crazy lucky in my career, um, especially because it's, you know, it's a career where a lot of people, you know, there's been a lot of layoffs. You know, print journalism is a, is a hard thing to make the numbers work. Uh, for a lot of for a lot of places, I can't believe the good fortune I have had, and it's been 25 years, which is in itself seems an amazing amount of time to be yeah. a reporter. You were part of a team at the Washington Post that won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018 for national reporting for coverage of Russian interference in 2006 in the 2016 election. Can you talk a bit about that and? if and how that reporting is tied to your book, October Surprise. Sure. So uh, I, I, I joined the Washington Post in early 2017. And if you think back to that time, that was when uh, all the questions and uh, stories about Russian interference in the 2016 election and what the Trump campaign knew or didn't know about that interference was really coming to the fore. And it was it is a great group of reporters who just worked very, very hard um, under a lot of pressure and a lot of, you know, second guessing in the public space, which is right and just, and there should be. Um, and we broke a lot of news about what had happened in 2016 as far as what the Russians did. And, and also a big part of that was how the U.S. government responded to what the Russians did and how the American people viewed both what the government did in 2016 and what Russian uh, agents did in 2016. Those are two very different things. And out of that reporting, I decided to write a book because what I felt was so important. So my job, my primary job is to cover the Justice Department and the FBI. And I really came away from covering all those, that time period, particularly 2016, feeling that the FBI had played just an enormous role in picking the next president. And it wasn't that they set out pick the next president, but they made decisions based on their work and, frankly, the FBI's own self-interest that had huge consequences for who became the president in 2016. And I thought that was really important to explain. And I felt like as someone who had covered the FBI and DOJ for, you know, more than two decades, it would have eaten at me if I hadn't written it. It would have really gnawed at me because I feel like I can actually explain this stuff in a pretty coherent way. Uh, and that's why I wrote the book. And I assume because of your background, having that long experience covering them, you had some pretty strong relationships oh, yeah. uh, built up so that there was a mutual trust in terms of uh, the people that you were questioning right. uh, would know that you would report with integrity. Right. And that's a big part of, of I think, any reporter work, but I think especially in the law enforcement space, uh, most of us, most of the, my colleagues and competitors in this space have been doing it a long time. Most of us has, have pretty significant relationships. And as it happened, you know, I had covered some of those people who were so important in 2016 for decades. So for example, Jim Comey, who was the FBI director, I had covered him as a prosecutor in New York years before. So I knew a lot about him as a person. 
Uh, and and same thing with Loretta Lynch, who was then the attorney general during this whole crazy period. I had covered her as a prosecutor uh, even longer in New York. So I think that definitely helped. Um, and it certainly informed not just what I reported, but why I thought it was important, because I think some of the things that the FBI and Justice Department did in 2016 probably should never be done again. And I don't think that there was a cabal or a conspiracy or like, you know, a bunch of, you know, people in shadows sitting around X-Files style, you know, conjuring up conspiracies. I think people too often put their own personal reputation, uh, personal reputational interest ahead of what was best for the country and what was best for a free and fair election. And that's the point I tried to get across in the book that institutions have to, at some point, stop worrying so much about themselves and worry a little more about what's best for the country. Right. And that certainly comes through in the book. I hope so. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I have to admit, I have not read the book, but I've listened, I've listened to it. Oh, thank you. I listened to the audio book, which I thought was very good. And I thought that the narrator was particularly good. Thanks a ton. I, I offered to narrate it myself. And I'm like, you know what? You were a little too New York-y in the way you talk. Uh, we're going to have a professional do this. And I thought, that's probably a very good decision. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting because his vocal quality is quite different oh, than yours. No doubt. He's a professional. Uh, but uh, he captures the essence of That's what the great. book's about, That's which great. is what he's supposed Thank to you. do. That's wonderful to hear. So, <laughs> in your mind, and I guess there's been enough time, it was released last September, yep. right? Yep. Uh, do you think it's been well-received? Have you? I, I look yeah. for reviews of it. Yeah. And Unfortunately, I, oh, that's all right. It did. I think I found one yes. in the New York Times. I found their review yes. of it. There, it's, it didn't get a ton of reviews, which is, which is a little disappointing. Uh, I think part of the challenge was the pan, the book world was sort of seized by the pandemic the same way a lot of other places were. And that month, I remember that month being a little dispirited just in the sense of there were a whole bunch of books that came out. Um, all in the same topic space, uh, Trump, Mueller, uh, the Mueller investigation, all those sorts of things. And I sort of knew, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to be fighting each other for oxygen, which, you know, isn't the end of the world. Uh, but what's been really gratifying is, one, it has sold fairly well, which is nice. You never want, want to feel like, you know, someone took a gamble on you and lost. Right. Uh, two, the response from law enforcement people has been amazing. You know, I think Part of what I wanted to do was explain the FBI in its own terms, because I think the outside world understands and perceives the FBI largely through TV shows and movies. And I like TV and I like movies, but that's not how the FBI really works. And I really wanted to do as best I could a, um, an explanation of how the FBI really works and why it ended up mattering so much in 2016. And, you know, so many agents and, and other folks have reached out to me since to tell me how much they liked it and that and how much it told them things they didn't know about the place that they themselves worked. And that meant a lot. That means, still means a lot to me. Right. Uh, you mentioned the pandemic and how it perhaps affected uh, reviews and all that sort of thing. Uh, you've been on the shore. Yeah. Since the pandemic started. Yeah. Uh, how has that affected your work in terms of being able to work remotely and particularly being on a shore, which is kind of an isolated sort of place? Oh, sure. So it's been a wild experience. So um, uh, 
I, the, the defining characteristic for me being down here was really closing schools. So normally my wife and I and our two kids live in Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside of DC. And a lot of what I do is face-to-face -face conversation. So, you know, being remote doesn't work for that. Uh, there are a lot of leak investigations. A lot of what I talk about in the book is how obsessed the FBI is with leak investigations. So calling people up or emailing them is a really bad way to try to do my job in particular. Um, so we came down here when they closed schools in I think it was March of last year, and we joking. My wife jokingly posted on Facebook, "I guess we're I guess we'll see Arlington in a couple of weeks. You know, we'll be back soon." Uh, and it's been, you know, 14 months and counting. It will probably be, I guess, 16 months by the time we're, we head back. And it's been, it's been wonderful. So on the one hand, you know, our bosses have been incredibly understanding of this just sort of the structural and life challenges that this all brings. You know, that first spring of trying to teach your kids while also doing your job. I mean, that was, that was not fun. Um, but at the same time, we had such advantages that other people didn't have, like, our kids could just, we could just say, go run outside and play. And there's a hundred acres for them to do that. Um, that was wonderful. That is wonderful. Um, this is a wonderful place. Machapongo, I love Machapongo to death. Um, but work-wise, it was very challenging. It was very difficult. I spent, I spent a little while writing about chicken uh, processing plants because that, that was the news here. And I was like, well, I got to do something. I got to help. I got I to lend, lend a hand somehow to the effort. And that's what I did. And, and I finished the book here. I had done, fortunately, I had done all the reporting and some of the writing before I got down here. But I finished the writing and the rewriting, which is, I didn't realize because this was my first book, a huge part of the job is the rewriting. I did all that down here, you know, looking out at the fields and at 13 and wondering when there were going to be cars on it again. Um, and it's been, it's been a, just an incredible blessing for our family. I, I you know, my... <laughs> Every now and then, my friends in New York or DC would say, "You know, why do you still have that farm? Like, what? I mean, you could sell that, and you could your life could be better here." And I have a long for you know. There's a lot of family and personal reasons why that just doesn't appeal to me. But man, Machapungo was an absolute lifesaver for me this year. Well, that's good to hear. And uh, now that we do have a degree of normalcy, uh, I guess you're planning to return to DC. Yeah, I'm a little sad about it. Uh, we're going to head back so that our kids can go back to school in the schools where they were going before all this started. Um, you know, we've got, but we've got a lot of, you know, farm things to tie up. You know, our boys have been taking care of chickens and goats and ducks, and that's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, but we got to find new homes for them the next couple months, uh, which will which will be another part of it. It'll be sad, but it'll it'll be good. Can you comment on the recent FBI sting using the Anom messaging service app? Right, that's a that's a wild case. So what what that case involved was uh, the FBI basically created a form of text messaging app, and then they had someone in the criminal world essentially market it and sell it to criminals and wannabe criminals around the world. And, you know, oftentimes those things don't take off because you need, you need people to, you need the bad guys to essentially believe it. But this one really took off in a big way. Mostly in other countries, one of the quirks of that case is that most of the people who've been arrested are actually, you know, criminal suspects in countries like Australia, New Zealand, Serbia, 
uh, stock, you know, Sweden. It's, it's, a, it's a very interesting cross-section of the world in terms of which criminal groups seem to have picked it up and tried to use it. But essentially what they did was they gave these criminals phones and said, if you text on these phones, no law enforcement can see it. It's all encrypted. No outside law enforcement can see it. And the truth was that not only could they see it, they saw it first before anyone else saw it. And so they were basically downloading and, you know, saving every single message these criminals sent to each other. And because the criminals, uh, again, these are suspects, they haven't been convicted yet. But because these suspects thought they were secure, they were much chattier, some of them, in this form of communication than they were in other places. And it led to hundreds of arrests around the world. It's it's an amazing case. And I think we'll see more types of cases like that as, as time goes on. Um, they are hard technologically to stand up and get rolling. But once they do, they sort of take on a momentum of their own because once there's buy-in from the criminal universe, you know, the customers will come to you. Right, right. Is there anything you're currently working on, like another book that you could share with us? <laughs> I'm not working on another book right now. I, I did just finish a story that that is dear to me about how the federal prison system uh, runs a sort of quasi-bank for its inmates, which has hundred million, more than $100 million in it. And some of these inmates, which shocking to me personally, some of these inmates have more than $200,000 in their accounts. And, and remember, these are people who can, in theory, only spend money on stuff like Doritos and stamps. And, you know, you're never going to spend 200 grand. Like you could be in prison for hundreds of years and not spend all that money in the commissary. So I, and, and there's a lot of law enforcement concern that that money is basically uh, almost like a, a, a shelter, a haven of some kind for some right. of these criminals. And so that, I just, that's just my, my the last thing I worked on. And I'm, I'm proud of that work. I think it's a pretty good story, you know. Um, and now it's on to the next thing. <laughs> well, I really want to thank you for sharing the mic with us. And uh, I so wish much. you the very best in your trek back. I'm going to be very sad to my go back. So, got to go back to my job. I got, you know, got to go back to, you know, quote unquote, normal life. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. If you would like to listen to the audiobook of October Surprise by Devlin Barrett, please go to audible.com. You've been listening to Sharing the Mic with David Phillips, produced by the Barrier Islands Center, Sally Dickinson, Executive Director, Laura Vaughn, Director of Donor Relationships, Kristen Dennis, Office and Marketing Manager, Grace Tankard, Assistant to the Executive Director. The Barrier Islands Center is located at 7295 Young Street, in Machipango, Virginia, 23405. The website is www.barrierislandscenter, all one word, dot O-R-G. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please direct them to bicpodcast at icloud.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. Until next time, stay safe and be well.